0: Let the torch of
1: freedom burn. Welcome to the Intersection of Faith and the Culture, Wall Builders Live, where we talk about today's hottest topics on policy, faith, and the culture. Always from a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective. My name is Rick Green. I'm America's Constitution coach and a former state legislator. I'm here with David Barton. He is America's premier historian and the founder of Wall Builders, and Tim Barton's with us. He's a national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders. Most importantly, we're glad you are with us and you are going to love today's program. It's going to be very exciting. But before we get to that, I want to encourage you to visit our websites, wallbuilders.com and wallbuilderslive.com. At that wallbuilderslive.com website, there is a ton of information, including archives of the program from previous weeks. If you missed those, You can grab them right now at our website and get caught up. Some great interviews in there, some great presentations, lots of good information to equip and inspire you to be a good citizen and help us restore America's Constitution. And one of the best ways you can do that is click on the Contribute button there at wobblederslive.com and make that one-time or monthly donation. It's how this program works. We're a listener-supported program, so thank you, all of you out there from all across the nation, so many different places that uh, folks contribute and help us do this. Thank you for doing that. And for those of you that haven't done that yet and have been thinking about it, now is the perfect time. We would sure appreciate it. All right, David and Tim, let's jump into our questions. First one is from Nadine from Iberia, Missouri. And Nadine, this is going to be a little bit long, but let me read this to you guys, and then you can think it through. One of these, um, I've been curious about myself. I'd read about this uh, Oney Judge, which was a a runaway slave uh, from Mount Vernon, and there's some quotes from uh, George Washington about that, that people often bring out. And so th- there's a couple of great questions in here. So I'm going to read her whole email. Here we go. Hello, I want to thank you for the passion and love you have for accurate history and for sharing it with the world. The more I've learned about early American history and our founding fathers, the more I'm amazed and interested in knowing more. I've been doing some research on George Washington because I'm going to be teaching an elementary age history class at our co-op next school year. I'm going to be dressing up as a different character, so I was looking at some things Mount Vernon has on display. I found some articles that were a little confusing, and I was wondering if you could clarify some things for me. First, there's a section talking about Oney Judge, a runaway slave from Mount Vernon, and several of the claims that don't sit well with me, but this one especially is very interesting. "Quote: She was among the enslaved people whom Washington secretly rotated out of the latter city in order to evade the 1780 Pennsylvania Emancipation Law. Washington asked his secretary to accomplish this rotation, quote, under pretext that may deceive both them and the public, unquote. This is referring to a letter Washington wrote to Tobias Lear and is in the National Archives. I read through the letter a couple times, but didn't feel I was fully understanding it and would love for you to interpret it for me. Secondly, she said it also talks about Washington being okay with physical correction, quote, when necessary. And this is the the quote from what she read. In 1793, farm manager Anthony Wittig accused Charlotte, an enslaved seamstress, of being imprudent by arguing with him and refusing to work. As punishment, he whipped her with a hickory switch, a reprisal Washington deemed very proper. It goes on to different quotes from Washington that seem degrading towards slaves. Are these claims accurate? I'd been under the impression that Washington treated his slaves well, taught them to be literate, thought of them as family, fed and clothed them well, and that the only reason why he hadn't freed them sooner was because of Virginia laws. I realize it was a different time uh, back then, but I also want to make sure when I teach my class that I'm given an accurate portrayal of Washington from all sides. Thank you again for sharing your passion with the world and igniting a new love for history in me and a desire to share it with the coming generation. Nadine, first of all, thank you for teaching. Thank you for doing the co-op that you're doing. Thank you for diving deep. Thank you for being hungry for truth and being willing to ask what are tough questions and dealing with things, um, you know, where all of our perspectives are very different today than they were back then. David, Tim, what do you think?
0: Well, it's a tough one, and we're going to give some answers, but I'm going to say this caveat up front so nobody misunderstands. The answers we're going to give will mitigate what some of the claims are, but that's not in an effort to approve of slavery or say it wasn't bad or say that, that this was a good situation. It, it, just right up front, slavery's wrong. It's bad. We're not condoning it. We're just going to tell you what was going on in the context, both of state law and, And of Washington's thinking, because while there is a short quote out of each of these paragraphs you read, you you read the paragraph, and what people can't see is the quote is only four, five, six words long in that paragraph. So it's somebody else summarizing and pulling one quote out of the paragraph. When you read the full letter and read the other letters and read what's going on at the time, it's a whole different picture. But again, that's not in any effort to say slavery wasn't a bad deal or anything. Else. So let's just take the first part. The first part deals with um, the 1780 Pennsylvania law. And what happened was when the Capitol was set up in, in the U.S. Capitol, it was in Pennsylvania. Uh, it was in New York the first year and then Pennsylvania for the next 10 years. So George Washington is president of the United States. And at that point in time, the presidential mansion, whatever it was, was in Philadelphia. And the 1780 emancipation law that was passed in Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania was one of those early states to to get rid of slavery. Once we got out from under Great Britain, Pennsylvania is a state that said, we don't want slavery. And so all of the northern states had passed a law ending slavery by 1804. By 1804, they'd all passed laws that were going to end slavery. So that's where Congress is meeting, in one of those states that is saying, we don't want slavery. We had it under the British. We don't want that. The law also said that if you bring a slave into the state and you reside more than six months, that slave is automatically free. So what would happen is slaves from Mount Vernon would go up with Washington, would serve him there at the presidential mansion. So Washington rotates the slaves out every five or five and a half months to avoid what happens under that Pennsylvania law, which would have created real problems with him back home because the slaves live in Virginia. Washington has expressed that he wants slaves to be freed, and we have various letters along the way where he's trying to free slaves. And there was a law that was passed in 1782 for Virginia that said, okay, there's one condition in which you can free your slaves, and that's when you die in your will. You can't free them until you die in your will. And so that was for Washington's slaves. There were about 300 slaves, 316, 317 at Mount Vernon. And about 130-something of those belong to Washington, and just under 200 belong to Martha. Now, here's the deal. Martha Slaves, let's back up a minute. Martha was married to a man before she was married to George. He was one of the wealthiest guys in Virginia, and he ended up dying. She becomes a widow. Then George Washington meets her, and they get married. Well, when her husband died, she became the heir uh, from her husband of one of the wealthiest estates in Virginia, and she inherited a bunch of slaves, 200, whatever it was. So she inherited the slaves. At the point she inherits slaves, Martha inherits slaves, they are now called dower slaves. Don't know why dower, but that's the word, D-O-W-E-R. And a dower slave in Virginia law is not allowed to be freed, period. Can't do it. So Martha can't set them free. When she marries George, she and George can't set them free. When Martha dies, she can't set them free in a will. They go on to the children So dower slaves are completely out of their control. So there's two
2: types of slaves Washington had to deal with. Hey, Dad, let me point out too that in these dower slaves, part of the significance, even in this conversation, not only could they not free them, they were responsible for the for every individual of those dower slaves to be handed down to the next generation. And so if one gets away, you are liable for the one that got away legally because you're supposed to hand down All of that, what was viewed right at that time as as the property, these slaves were property. You're supposed to hand down all of those slaves as part of the quote-unquote property to the next generation. And so if one gets away, you also have a level of liability under the law for what you are not giving legally to the next generation. So they couldn't free them. They were legally required to give every one of them down. And this, again, according to Virginia law, different from Washington slaves, that he legally could free them on his death through his will, but could not do any of that with the dower slaves and was legally required to hand all of them down to the next generation.
0: And so Anna Judge is one of Martha's slaves, is with Martha in the house. Martha thought they were good relations together, and then Anna Judge escapes. Now, Martha was perplexed about that. Why would she want to leave? We've been such good friends together. Well, I can tell you why she wanted to leave. She
2: wanted to be free. That's real simple. No matter how well you treated her, nobody wants to be a slave. And in that letter that you're referring to from Martha, she says, I treated her like one of my children. I, I treated her so well. I loved her. And, and and really in this letter, she is pouring out emotion where she was connected because she on, on some level felt very motherly. Now that, as you're saying, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that Ona felt the love from Martha or that she wanted Martha to be her mom. And, you know, obviously there can be a disconnect, but for Martha in the letter, she talked about how much she loved her and how well they treated her and how well they took care of her. And so in Martha's mind, this is something that she, she can't comprehend because of how well that that family had treated her. And, and this is part of what she expresses to George and, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, every husband knows that if something is really, really, really important to your wife, it better be pretty important to you or you're not going to have a great relationship with your wife. And so when Martha sends this information to George and says, you've got to do something, you have to find her, George, right? Both legally, according to Virginia law, because this was a dower slave. And now because it's a big deal to his wife, he says, okay, I'll see what I can do, right? We'll we'll, we'll see if, if we can find her. And this is where he hires someone to go start that process, seeing if they can track down Ona who has run away. And after a bit of time, Um, The guy comes back, can't
0: find Ona, and it's like, do you want somebody else to try? And it's like, yeah, okay. And so a second one goes out, and they never get Ona back, and he's never particularly concerned about it. There's nothing that shows that he was upset that that happened, and nothing that shows that he was vigorous in trying to pursue Ona or get her back. He made an effort on paper, if you will, he made a showpiece effort to do something, but that's a whole different story from choosing one line out of an article and and taking one line of a letter because when you put it in context of all the laws he had to deal with and he makes it very clear that he doesn't like slavery uh, he he worked earlier in the Virginia legislature trying to end slavery he passed resolutions trying to end slavery when he's elected to the Continental Congress he took resolutions there trying to end slavery like his records really clear he's in a situation he doesn't want to be in And so when he dies, he frees all of his slaves. Now, the other interesting thing, certainly there's people like Ona Judge and others that ran away from the plantation. They didn't want to be slaves, no matter how well you treat them. I understand that totally. But there's another side of this that's fairly interesting, is some of the slaves that Washington freed were interviewed um, several years after Washington died. And one of those slaves particularly talked about how much easier It was to live on the plantation and be taken care of by Washington, who they called a good and kind master, than to be free and have to take care for himself. And that kind of surprised everybody. But by the way, that's a very common thing for a lot of narratives. Booker T. Washington indicates some of that same feeling with the slaves he knew when he was a slave, that some of them really thought it was better, Um, it was an easier life for them when they were in slavery if they had a kind master, and George Washington apparently was one. I mean, what's called the slave narratives that were done in the 1930s by the work WPA under um, FDR. They went and interviewed people who had been slaves. And the same story comes through time and again, that when, those that had a good master, it was so much easier to be a slave than take care of ourselves. So having said that, Washington dies. And there were occasions when passerbys would, would come by Mount Vernon even years later and find former slaves out there taking care of Mount Vernon and taking care of the grounds and, and taking care of Washington's burial site. And it's like, why are you doing this? Washington's dead. Yeah, but our loyalty to Washington. So there is certainly, you know, again, this is in no way to condone slavery or say it wasn't as bad as people said. Look, nobody wants to be a slave, even though life may be easier. And so to take a couple of examples of Washington and take a couple of lines out of letters, When this guy is responsible for tens of thousands of letters, and there's so much else and so many other things said about Washington, uh, I, I would say the tone is wrong on that. The letters are right, the letters said what they said, and he said what he said in those letters, but the tone is what's not right. And when you put it all in context and look at all the other writings, all the other statements by other slaves, look at what was going on, I think you should come away with a different tone than what's communicated in just those two excerpt quotes. And by the way, how do I say this? You guys are all younger than me. So I don't know. I don't think we have any Gen Z's, but we got some Gen X and Gen Y. And my grandparents very clearly told me that if I didn't behave, they're gonna whip me with the hickory stick. And so getting whipped with a hickory stick was there's a generation where that's no big deal. And, you know, the teachers did that all the time. Wait, wait,
1: them. wait, 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 wait. My grandmother made me go pick out the stick. I had to go, I had to go <laughs> get go. the switch and bring it. And if it wasn't strong enough, she made me go back and get another yep. one. Yep.
0: There you go. So, uh, you know, it, it sounds like violent abuse of a slave. And again, take it in context. They said a hickory switch. And, I, you know, again, I'm not trying to put words in their mouth, but it's not as, as bad as maybe
2: Gen Zers today might think it is. Well, you know, guys, too, as, as we're talking about taking these in context, you know, could it have been worse than we're imagining? Yeah, you bet. But could it have been right, not nearly as significant as people are pretending like it is? Absolutely. And so, this is where one of the things we used to understand, even though we know nobody's perfect, our starting place, first of all, as Christians, is that all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. That that nobody's perfect. The reason Jesus came is because none of us are perfect. We also understand historically. As we look at heroes, everybody that we can honor for doing something great, we know they also had their weaknesses. They, they had strengths and weaknesses. They had good moments and bad moments. And we also, I would even say as a Christian, we know nobody's above the flesh. So looking, is it possible that George Washington had a bad fleshly moment in one occasion and something happened? Like totally it's possible, but it's also something that if you're basing it on, on one phrase, one time. And that phrase can be taken more than one way, right? Maybe we're not getting the whole story. Maybe we're reading too much into this. And and this is where even, you know, it, as, as Christians, we can talk about what's the difference between exegesis and eisegesis and it, the way we interpret scripture. Are you are you reading it and taking out what the Bible says? Or are you trying to put things into what the Bible says? Well, there's there's a right way to do that and there's a wrong way to do that. And in history, it's very similar that at times we can read it and we can try to make it say something that it doesn't necessarily say and when you read history in context, it, it doesn't always excuse the behavior. In fact, sometimes it's more incriminating when you keep it in context. You go, wait a second, they did what to who, when, what were they thinking? But if you look at the the picture as a whole, when when you measure the character, the nature of the individual and you see the consistency of their life, and then you have a moment like we're, we're reading about now, was this as bad as the accusations. I don't think nearly as bad as what the accusations are. Is there a chance it could have been bad? Yeah, there's a chance it could have been bad because we know no one's perfect. No one's above the flesh. But also if, and I don't think it was, but if we said, right, this is an example where there was a failure in Washington's life, that's totally possible. It does not disvalidate who he was. It doesn't disvalidate his character, the contributions he made to America, All it would do is point out that he's a little more human, uh, a little more like us maybe sometimes than some people recognized or identified historically. But I, I see this very much as one of the attacks that we see sometimes against guys like whether it be a Christopher Columbus or Thomas Jefferson or some of the people that we should look back and we should really be grateful for. We should honor them for the contributions they made while acknowledging they weren't perfect, but also recognizing that they're not guilty of most of the sins and the crimes they're accused of today. I definitely think that's true with George Washington. This is just one of the latest of many attacks to uh, diminish maybe his contributions by saying, "Look, he wasn't as good as you guys think." I, I never thought this dude was perfect. I, I think the reason Jesus came is because none of us are perfect. And yet, again, when you read this in context, there is at times more than one way to read it. Dad, as we pointed out, even with, with the story of Ona Judge, uh, the, you know, running away and Washington's trying to track her down. Well, I mean, kind of. But 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 maybe not for the reasons people are thinking when, when he's legally obligated to and he's held liable for not handing down all the slaves that are part of the dower slaves. And it's a big deal to his wife. So he's like, you know, Martha, OK, hey, I'll, we'll go look and see what we can find. A lot of this makes sense in context. And sometimes the context is not where the accusation is. So th- th- there's not always an easy answer. But if you look at the individual as a whole, it certainly doesn't seem that Washington fits the narrative of the modern accusation, even of this incident.
0: And one of the probably ought to go into this as well is when you look back at the records, there's a lot of people who visited Mount Vernon. Uh, there are times when he would have several dozen people a night staying at Mount Vernon. A lot of visitors came through. A lot of people he never knew, never met, came through. They just wanted to spend the night at George Washington's place. And that was common back then. That, that was there was a night that that Thomas Jefferson had 50 people stand at Monticello after he retired as president. He didn't know most of them. It got so bad that Thomas Jefferson actually built a different house so he could live in a place of privacy while all these people came visit his house. So from the neighbors, we have a couple of accounts of neighbors who talk about Washington was a really mean guy. He was really mean to his slaves. He wasn't nice at all. And then we have so many accounts of other neighbors and those who came and visited about how Washington was so nice and so respectful, it's still slavery. We're not trying to justify slavery. But you do have conflicting accounts. There are some that say, oh, yeah, he's a really mean guy. But the overwhelming part say, no, he wasn't. And so which do you go with? Well, maybe on some days he wasn't a great guy. And maybe most of the time he was. But also, when you look at the slaves after they were freed, there was a couple that were really bitter about Washington. But the overwhelming majority just thought he was great and they wanted to come back and serve even after he was dead. So there are some examples out there you could point to. But when you take the whole overall bulk of evidence, don't think you can come up with the tone that those two selected quotes come up with and justify it as the normal lifestyle for George Washington.
1: All right, guys. Well, obviously, a long question and a long answer necessary. I mean, we could spend uh, weeks and weeks and weeks just on this subject. Uh, Really, this is one you write a whole book about for sure, but uh, really great answers and and just good context for all of us to recognize. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll come back and get one more question before we close out the day. Stay with us. It's Foundations of Freedom Thursday. You're listening to Waldovers.
2: Tim Barton with Wall Builders. And as you've had the opportunity to listen to Wall Builders Live, you've probably heard the wealth of information about our nation about our spiritual heritage, about the religious liberties, about all the things that makes America exceptional. And you might be thinking, as incredible as this information is, I wish there was a way that I could get one of the Wall Builders guys to come to my area and share with my group, whether it be a church, whether it be a Christian school or public school or some political event or activity. If you're interested in having a Wall builder speaker come to your area, you can get on our website at www.wallbuilders.com. And there's a tab for scheduling. And if you'll click on that tab, you'll notice there's a list of information from speakers' bios to events that are already going on. And there's a section where you can request an event to bring this information about who we are, where we came from, our religious liberties and freedoms. Go to the WallBuilders website and bring a speaker to your area. We're back on
1: Wall Wild Thanks for staying with us on this Foundations of Freedom Thursday. Next question comes from Joel. He said, aloha. So I'm assuming, guys, he's from Hawaii or he's from Hawaii, but living somewhere else in the U.S. But Joel, aloha back at you or Mahola. Or what? how do you say it when you respond? You guys uh, have been to Hawaii a lot more than
2: I have. Yeah, it's still <laughs> aloha, but you're thinking of the word mahalo, which is not quite right. Mahalo. What, what does that mean? But it, it would still be aloha. Well,
1: is that when you say Bye. Or that's a different, totally different thing. I think Mahalo is more of like a thank you. Leave it to Rick to totally derail us from our uh, question today and figure out how to talk when we go to Hawaii. Uh, Okay. anyway, back to Joel's question. He said, we know that the KKK and Jim Crow laws, by the way, that's probably just for all of our listeners to know. If you can get me to Hawaii, I need to spend more time there so that I know how to say these words. We know that the KKK and Jim Crow laws were started by the Democrat Party. You point this out to people and they say that the party switched which indirectly admits that it was the Democrats. What are the best arguments outside of projection to refute the party's switched argument? Thanks. Uh, all right, guys. So did the parties just suddenly switch? And uh, and now all of a sudden the Republicans are anti-black uh, people and pro-slavery.
2: I don't know any Republicans that are any of those things, but go ahead, guys. Yeah, this is one of the old accusations. It's been around... Uh, it, really for a while, the so Democrats have tried to explain why they're not really the bad guys anymore. They used to be, now it's the Republicans because we all know about the great switch. And, and this is one of those examples that we would point people to when someone makes a a statement, when someone makes a claim, the impetus is not on us to prove them wrong. The burden of proof is on them to defend their position. And, and, and right, maybe in this situation, we're just kind of exploring the thought of, well, how, well, how would you answer this or, or what is actually true but this is where fundamentally, if someone's saying the party switched, all right, so so explain this to me. And I would start off with, well, what year did they switch? It would, which seems like this should be pretty simple, right? Well, I mean, it was really over time. Oh, well, like over what time frame? Well, you know, it's 1930s or the 1970s. Well, those are two pretty different time frames. Who were all and then this is right like kind of follow-up questions, who were all of the Republican leaders that became Democrats and who were all the Democrat leaders that became Republican. And they'll be like, well, I mean, I, I don't really I don't know all the names, but it was like all of them. No, in fact, it was like none of them. Historically, you can find one or two individuals that switch parties, but that's not a lot different than even the movements today. Today, you can see individuals switching parties. Even in, in U.S. Senate, we have seen people switch parties, so to speak, leaving the Democrats becoming independent or something of such nature. But, but this is where, historically, people are making claims that are fundamentally not true, and they are asking us to believe it so that they can defend their party's own bad, racist, oppressive history. And again, fundamentally, it just the, the parties didn't switch. What did happen— is in the 1930s uh, under FDR, there were a lot of black individuals that began voting Democrat for the first time because FDR was the one in the Great Depression who was offering uh, food kitchens and things to help people in need. And so there were individuals saying, hey, we need this guy because he's going to help take care of us. Uh, also in the move forward 1960s 70s there were more black individuals that began voting democrat but but part of this was LBJ and this is something that you can look up it's very clear where LBJ said that he was going he was going to do things to help uh, make black people begin voting democrat and he actually used some very derogatory words he said i'm going to have them voting democrat the rest of their life and and this is where the democrats began buying the votes of individuals in the black community well just because more black individuals began voting for Democrats in those two general eras doesn't mean the parties actually switched positions. They never did. The Democrats fundamentally have always been the party that was abusive of individuals that took away their rights, that used them for their own gain, power, and benefit. That's still a lot of what we're seeing today.
0: And I would add to that a political side, because this is a thing that happens in politics a lot that make broad, sweeping claims and throw them at you. Rick, you may remember this, but in political training, it was always a thing of, and here's the hypothetical question. Rick, when did you stop beating your wife, Kara? <laughs> right, and exactly. exactly. You say, beat my wife, Kara? I've never beat my wife, Kara. Why would you say I beat my wife, Kara? And you go on and on and on, and you, and you deny so much. They go, boy, Rick sure talks about beating his wife, Kara, a lot. And, and so the right thing to do is you say, <laughs> why in the world would you accuse me of such a lie like that? And you throw it back on them and make them answer it. and that's what Tim's talking about. Yeah. Rather than answering that, make them answer it, because they made the claim, make them stand by it. The more you deny the claim, the more you're repeating their message, and the stronger it
1: becomes in their favor. Yeah, good stuff, guys. Good stuff. Great answers to a lot of great questions today, folks. There's going to be more of this next week, and you can send your questions in to radio at wallbuilders.com. That's radio at wallbuilders.com. You've been listening to Wall Builders.
2: We stand divide.